My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the DTD Studios. This week, I'm super humbled and honored that this guest is in the studio. She's a gold star wife who lost her husband in 2017. Her husband was a Green Beret assigned to ODA 3212. On a devastating mission, he and his team were ambushed by ISIS terrorists in Niger, Africa, near the Mali border. The story doesn't end there, though. After repeated attempts to learn the truth about what happened, she became part investigative reporter, part fact checker, and one hell of a writer. Her book, Sacrifice, tells the story that so few people have heard the truth about. Tonight, I am honored to introduce Michelle Black. How are you? Hi, thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, uh, we have so much to talk about. This book, when I thought it couldn't end, it just got more and more and more. And and the way I kept thinking of it, I don't think they could make a Hollywood movie with the bravery and this story told in real life. Like it, Some of these things were just absolutely amazing that these guys did on the ground and how selfless they were with each other. Um, you know, they gave no thought about themselves. It was just to protect their team. So we've got a lot to talk about. I want to start out with asking you, it's going to sound a little weird, but can you close your eyes and describe your husband for me off your top of your head? Just, I, I want to see if it matches what you wrote in the book. Gosh. Um, yeah. Should I actually close my eyes? <laughs> you don't have to, I'm saying just, uh, to, <laughs> to, to think about it. You know, I, I always say that the bookshelf behind me describes Brian, you know, anywhere from signed chess books that he taught himself chess when he was, you know, a kid. And before you know it, he was second in the nation by the time he was 11 years old. Um, and then the Boss Rutan Big Book of Combat, he has all of those because he was also a cage fighter, MMA. Um, and he was one of the nicest guys you would ever meet. Just, I mean, could kill you with his bare hands, but wouldn't hurt a fly. Um, just selfless and incredibly intelligent and fun to be around. And that you say fun. that you say that he's the love of your life. And, and it's so great to hear when you say that, that uh, because of how it started, when you guys, when you tell the story in the book about how you met and what you learned about him just hanging out, uh, that he was playing online poker, skiing during the day, you were instructing ski and, and just hanging out. You weren't looking for a boyfriend and he just kind of appeared in your life. And as you learn more and more about him, he became like this onion that you were just peeling away that uh, when you first met him, you talk about that he acted dumb in front of people so that they would think he was. And he was really kind of manipulating the system and stuff. And, and the more you learned about him, you saw how he was doing that. The man spoke four languages. He played chess. He read all the time. He just was an enigma. Um what about him attracted you to him? I think the biggest thing was that, well, there were, there were a few things, but uh, there was no quit in Brian at all. Um, 
he would rather die than quit anything. So there was that, um, including pursuing me. He didn't care. It didn't matter. I mean, I could have insulted him. I could do whatever I wanted. And his mind was already made up. So he wasn't going anywhere. Um, he was just there and reminding me that I was his boyfriend, whether or not I called him that. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I think that that confidence and yet he was extremely humble. I mean, for all his intelligence and you know, just, I mean, extraordinary to me looking at it and telling him, you know, you're one of the smartest people I've ever met. He'd always tell me, you know, you're never the smartest person in a room. There's always somebody smarter than you. And um, just this very humble attitude all the time um, treated everybody as, as his equal. Um, in fact, that was part of his reason when he joined for not going in as an officer. He wanted to be, because he had his degree, but he wanted to be on the ground with the men and really get that firsthand experience of combat and, and just earn people's respect that way. And I had heard you talk about that, uh, his roommate at one point, you had talked to him and he said like he went in his bedroom and was playing like four games of chess and four hands of poker all at the same time. And, uh, he was like, what are you doing? And he said, winning. And, and it, that's what Brian was known for was his brilliant one-liners where in any situation you could ask him anything and he would have the perfect answer instantly in as few words as possible. It was pretty um, incredible <laughs> to watch. So, Whenever you first started dating him, and, and that was a funny point in the book where uh, you said, I'm not your girlfriend. He said, yeah, you are. And, and finally, he just kind of wore you down. Did you ever see it ending up the way it did, being married, two kids, moving with the military? How, how did you envision it with him? You know, I think he married the right person because I've never been a planner. Um, I've always kind of been a fly by the seat of your pants person. In fact, before I moved up to Mammoth and I didn't put this in the book, I just decided one day to quit my job and that I'd go up and be a ski instructor. So I put um, what I could fit into a board bag and literally caught a ride up to the mountain, um, which was six hours from where, where I was living at the time. And I went up, got a job that day, taught all day, and then realized at the end of the day, I had nowhere to live. And I went to my uncle's house and uh, his girlfriend showed up and took me home with her. <laughs> so um, as far as planning, once Brian and I got married, I, I kind of just had that same mentality. You know, it'll all work out. I'll end up where I'm supposed to um, end up and God's in control of this. And, you know, we'll see what happens. Life's an adventure. Well, so. and I, I took that away from the book that you, you guys really had kind of a, a faith-based relationship. That's where it kind of really got going. And, and you leaned into that a lot into the book. Um, can you kind of talk about your religion and your faith and, and how it's not only gotten you where you were, with Brian along the way, but how it's gotten you through to today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, oddly enough, I wasn't raised in the church, so to speak. I, uh, I used to go to my grandma's house and she would teach me about, you know, God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and just tell me all about how great he was. So to me, he was just this friend that you hung out with and spoke to. And in college, I started going to uh, um, church for the first time and 
um, learned about actually studying the Bible and building that relationship through prayer. And um, so my, my relationship with God was never directly related to church, but, you know, it was still strong. So when I would go through things, that was always just a natural thing for me was to pull on that. And Brian was also very strongly um, just centered in the church. His parents were Christians and he was actually more raised in the church than I was. So he had, he was more solid and um, had more doctrine than I did. I was just kind of, you know, pick and pull here, but um, uh, it worked out. So we had kind of a little bit of the crazy version and a little bit of the sane version and it worked out well together. Um, and uh, he kept me grounded. So um, yeah, when, when we going through different challenges, like having a child on the autism spectrum and um, all the way up through losing Brian, I mean, those are the, f that's the first thing I go to. Um, is all the time I spent in college memorizing verses and going to church. Those are the first things that help me remember, you know, like morning may come with the night, but joy will come, um, you know, joy will come in the morning or what, however that goes. Um, I know it's not quite right. I never remember it quite right. But but the, the general sense of the term is, there, you know, there's always light at the other end and God will bring you through. And yeah. Well, let's talk about the children. Cause I told you when you and I talked on the phone before this, that this book to me was about family and about bringing family through a hardship and, and the struggles that, that you went through first with Brian. And then after you lost him, the struggles that you had to do on your own still, because you had to go back to your real life too. I mean, it wasn't where you could just pause on this. You had two children, you had things going on. You had to take care of everything from the ground up. Um, so let's talk about the kids. Now you talked about having on the spectrum uh, and that's Ezekiel. And you had Isaac, but Ezekiel was the kind of the main story to me about the children, because when you were, when he was young, you took him, they said that he may be on the low end. And, um, you once again, dug in your heels and said, no, this is not how this will be. It will turn out the way we make it turn out. So can you go into that a little bit? Because I think that's the first kind of peeking out of this character that, or characteristic that comes out in this book, because by the end of this book, you're a completely different woman, I believe, than at the beginning of it. Yeah, I think, you know, we have this idea in our nation and we're taught, you know, you, and I think generally in society, you follow rules, you, you believe the professionals and um, they're all, you know, they're the professionals, right? And if you follow the rules and you listen to the professionals, then you're making the right choice. And I took Ezekiel in and I'd been hearing for years that he was um, just a regular boy, just a little delayed, give it a few more years, he'll start talking. By the time he was five and not talking and had lost language and then begin parroting, which is where he repeats back what you say to him. Um, I finally got a diagnosis. And at that point I was told that he not only was on the low end of the autism spectrum, but that that meant he would never live away from home and never be in a regular ed classroom. And that if we had brought him in and gotten him diagnosed at two or three year, years old, um, he would have had a better outlook. 
And I was so enraged that I had followed the professionals, followed the doctors and listened the whole time, done everything right and followed all the rules. And here, once again, I was being told now that um, the doctors before were wrong. And I thought, well, then why is this person um, any different? What makes him right? Nothing makes him right. So I decided I knew all along my child had autism and I had no doubt that he was on the high end. Um, what I was told was that intelligence was really the factor in a child um, becoming more high functioning. And so that day I decided then he's going to be high functioning and I began to create, um, I would literally just draw letters A through Z and I'd put them up every day and we'd start saying the letter sounds. So he was in speech therapy, he was in kindergarten, and then every day he'd come home and before he could eat, he'd have to go A, 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 apple, B, 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 banana. And we'd go through and we'd sing it all. And then I'd mix it up and point to different, you know, letters. Before we knew it, he had all the sight words memorized and he was reading at the same time he was learning to speak. And um, it was then that I just decided, I don't care what anyone says. We're not following the rules. We're not following the professionals. This is my child and I am the professional. Well, and you kind of served it back up a year later when you take him back to the same psychologist. Uh, I think it was a psychologist, right? It was, yes. Yeah, you took him back to the same psychologist and he couldn't believe what had happened. Yeah, he said this n never happens. He goes, I, because when I left the year before, I had said, I appreciate what you said. However, I disagree he will be perfectly fine. And I left. And um, I'm not one to usually speak up and say something, but I had just had it. And he was my kid and I had just been completely devastated with the news that basically he had no future. And um, so the day I left the year prior, I said, you are wrong, he will be fine. Um, and so bringing him in that next year, the doctor just went, I am glad to say that you have proved me wrong. Did you feel like you wanted to say anything back? I mean, to go more in depth, because like you said, you would listen to the professionals, you would listen to people tell you this and, and act, actually complete opposite stories. For the first four years, it was this, you hit five and it's a different story. Was there anything you wanted to say, a, a good I told you so. Anything like that? No. What I felt motivated to do um, was to, ironically, just, which I wish I would have done at the time, but I didn't. But I felt like if I could help anybody else in this situation, because there are so many other families out there in this situation who are dealing with the exact same thing I am, but they might be giving up. Um, and just taking this guy at his word or, you know, it, it's so hard with something new and emerging like autism, um, like it was at the time. There's more information on it now, but um, there just wasn't much out there to teach you, you know, any of this. Even the doctors didn't know. They would look down their list and say, oh, well, he doesn't display all of these signs of autism. But then later I hear, well, now we know it's a spectrum. And so even having two of those 10 items means he's on the spectrum. Right. And so, you know, all these doctors didn't know that, but now this one guy does. And so I thought if I could somehow help somebody else, um, that would have been fulfilling. I, I didn't really feel like um, 
you know, I, I, I just, I felt victorious, but not necessarily like I wanted to throw it in the guy's face. Like, ha <laughs> Right. But, yeah. Well, so that's kind of a reoccurring theme throughout this whole book and, and kind of throughout your whole adult life after being married is, is trying to help people that are going through it. Uh, trying to help other gold star wives, trying to help other families that have uh, children on the spectrum and, and different things like that. Did you ever feel this in life? Because this has kind of become your life's mission. Did you ever think once again, that it would turn out this way? Because we talked about, did you think marriage would turn out that way with Brian? Did you think your life would turn out this way where you're trying to help so many different kinds of people? No, but I think that God knows what's in your heart and he designs your life after that. Whether bad things happen to you or good things, those, you know, your life is kind of designed around that. And I find that after um, losing Brian, you know, you have choices throughout your life on how you react to things. And my reaction was to, A, find the truth, but also to... Um, help other people because helping other people makes you feel better when you need healing um helping others heal always it takes your focus off yourself and off your own pain and helps to start um just you know healing those those pieces of you that are broken do you think and and you kind of touch on this in the book and i want to get into it a little bit later but when you talk about healing do you ever think you'll be fully healed from this? No. I don't think you ever heal from many things in life because you can always go back and pull up those memories and revisit them or um, encounter certain things that bring it back to you in a minute. You know, whether it's a song or a smell or, you know, my dad passed away 12 years ago and it's, it's that same thing. Now, one of the songs I used to listen to with him um, will pop up and it just, it ends my day. Um, so certain things, no, you don't ever heal from, but you learn to live, um, successfully with. And I think that's a, that's a choice. You can continue to live your life um, successfully and have joy and, and, and fully function in your life despite all these things, or you can let them completely um, break you. Well, I bring that up because it, there was an interesting part of the book where you talk about Memorial Day and that you're in the grocery store and you're, you're checking out and the girl asks you just, you know, in passing conversation, are you going to have some, are you going to do something fun this weekend? And you said a, a little before that you had learned what Memorial day really meant. And so when it comes around every year over and over for the rest of your life, do you ever think that your thoughts will change a little bit about that? Because you said that it's not a day for fun, which you're absolutely right. It's a day to remember. And it's quite frankly, a sad day. But do you ever think your heart will change a little bit in that thinking? No, no. And and the reason I ask that is, you know, like almost turning it into uh, kind of turning it on its head and into a rejoicing day where you, you know, show that person that, that you truly miss or that you truly loved. Um, you get to remember them and and almost have a whole day with them. I think that. Um, for me, 
you know, the, it's like saying, is stepping into a graveyard going to be, is there going to be a day that you dance there? Probably not. Right. Um, it, it's a nice idea, but I've done, I've, I've had my whole life where I danced, you know, through that right. day and danced through those places without realizing just how, um, just the gravity of the situation. Yeah. Well, and, and, and I think we'll talk about that a little bit when you actually get to Arlington Cemetery and things like that, the, the, the kind of perspective that it put it in. So if we can, uh, I'd like to get into the story a little bit because this was one of the most uh, just anger-inducing, awe-inspiring. There's so many different ways to tell this story. And I can't believe that before your book that this hasn't been told like the true heroes that these guys were. This is an unbelievable story. And it's so strange to me that we have so many stories out there that really don't matter that something like this has been overlooked uh, is, is just crazy to me. So I want to do kind of a timeline with you. Uh, and I want to start on the second, uh, of October, mm -hmm. you received a phone call that day. Uh, can we kind of go over that a little bit? Yeah. Brian called me and just said, basically they were headed out. They were going to head North again. Um, and that he would call me in a few days, you know, they were just, um, he couldn't talk. And, um, yeah, that was about it. So I talked for a little bit and then we hung up and, you know, it was just, I love you. I love you. Talk to you soon. Something interesting that I thought about what you said there, though, you know, he said he can't talk. He just wanted to hear your voice while he was kind of getting some stuff ready and doing paperwork. And then if I read it correctly, you felt kind of guilty afterwards because he didn't really talk. You didn't get to hear his voice. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I felt guilty because, um, well, because I felt like I had just monologued and talked about myself and our kids and just dumb stuff. You know, we always used to call it um, first world problems. And it's like, you know, we, we had just a few minutes. And so it's, I'm just rattling off dumb stuff. And I know it's dumb stuff. And, but looking back, you go, why did I spend 10 minutes on the dumb stuff? when I could have told him. And, and the truth is Brian wouldn't have heard it if I'd been, you know, I love you. I miss you so much. You're the most important person. I mean, come on, you know, actually he had been home that summer and I remember sitting with him or in the fall we sitting. No, it wasn't at the fall. It had been when he had come back the year before and mm -hmm. we were sitting at a wrestling match in um, February. It must've been in the winter. And I remember putting my head on his shoulder and just, you know, him just kind of being like, he didn't like the mushy stuff, you know, and he was kind of like, oh, public display of affection, like in front of all the wrestling people. Not that he cared, but he just was like, don't you have something better to do? <laughs> so I do know that if I had talked, you know, anything other than just dumb drivel, you know, it would have been awkward. And uh, so... That's not what he would have wanted. He liked hearing the nothing talk, but you still feel guilty. I, uh, I, I, I like to think, though, when I read that part of the book, I like to think that that, that was kind of what he needed to kind of keep going during the day. He only had five minutes, but he wanted to know that everything, because he was a very caring 
husband and father. He wanted to know these things that were going on back home. And I really feel like that was almost kind of the best way the conversation could have gone. Yeah, it's true. He just wanted to hear my voice and he wanted to hear all the dumb stuff. You know, I think that's what helped keep him uh, centered. And he always, you know, made it clear that he liked knowing that back home, nothing was ever in jeopardy, that he could just be at peace um, and know that he was coming back to a stable environment. Absolutely. You don't want to fight a war on two fronts. And if everything back, you know, you don't have to worry about that. That's a that's a strong thing in people to to give them calm and peace. Now, I want to talk about things that he had said to you. Did you ever get any sense of uh, missions were being done wrong there or anything like that before this mission actually happened? No, it just sounded like they were, you know, they'd only been in country for, gosh, six weeks. So they'd only been on a few missions at that point. I, I want to say two or three. So it wasn't that a ton was going wrong at all. Um, it was pretty standard. They were doing their training missions. And I'm glad you bring up the training missions because that will end up being a huge thing at the end of this book, the, the training and the things that were done before operations. But when you're talking to him, nothing really stands out to you. Uh, he seems pretty you know, perfectly happy with the team. And from everything that you write in the book, it seems that way too. Did you ever feel uneasy? I know when he left for there, you did, but was it a constant unease or was it just the day he left? It was a constant unease. I, um, every day almost, I would go and look out. We had this window out of our kitchen that looked over the front lawn and in the driveway. And I found myself not even realizing it, constantly checking out the window for cars, checking out the window to see if there were men in uniforms walking across my lawn. And I had never worried about that before, but it was like in my subconscious or in my soul that was already guaranteed. And, and when I hear that, I, I that's the word that I thought of, like a self-fulfilling prophecy almost. But you were never like that on any of his training, any of the other deployments that he had done. Do you have any idea what was it about this one that just put that black cloud from the very beginning? I have no idea. Um, I've had several times in my life where things have happened where I know before they happen. I knew before my dad was going to die that he was going to die. Um, I knew before my cousin met her husband that she was going to meet her husband, what he would look like and that they'd get married. Um, I just, I have these weird things that happen sometimes and I don't know why, but. Well, when you talk about that, uh, that happened on October 4th, where like in the middle of the day, you just felt an overwhelming calm and you heard a voice tell you everything's going to be all right. You'll get through this. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I was walking across my bedroom um, and was just stopped in my tracks by this overwhelming feeling that flowed through me of peace and just telling me that everything was going to be okay. And that was exactly what happened to me um, 10 years prior. No, it would have been less than 10 at that time. Um, but my dad had been, um, he'd had a heart attack when in 2010. 
or yes, 2010. And same thing happened then where I suddenly just was overwhelmed and it was this, everything's going to be okay. And, uh, at that point, I think my dad died a day later. And, um, I think Brian died either that day or the next day. So, so did, did that only add to the, the nervousness that you felt the, the uneasiness about him being gone? I know that you said you felt calm, but then after that's over, does it snap back and make it even more for you? Does, does it get even more uncomfortable? It didn't get more. It was just more certain. Um, I just wasn't at that point. The only question was, is it Brian or is it me? And let it, you know, what, what, what will be best for the kids for me to die while they're here with me or for him to die. And, you know, not, at least they're not walking in on it. So eight o'clock that night, you get a call from Brian's mom and she's asking you, you're trying to keep very calm in it. But she's asking if you've heard anything. You haven't heard anything. So it's almost like this is kind of traveling around the world. Like all these different people are feeling this uneasiness. Was that ever something that, that came out from you two talking? Did, did you ever give a, an appearance of unease about it? Did she come to this on her own? How did that happen? No, I'd actually been avoiding talking to her for a while because uh like I said, Brian had called, and since that time, I just thought until I hear from him again, I'm not going to talk to her. Um, and we usually talked almost, you know, every day, every other day. Um, and so I'd been avoiding talking to her, and she called and said there was a news flash that had come across her phone stating that a team along the Niger-Mali border had been attacked, that it was a Green Beret team, and um, some people had died and some were injured. And that's when I told her um, that was Brian's team. Brian is dead. And then I realized that I shouldn't say that to his mom. Um, so I, she's, she automatically um, backed up and, and said, Oh, we don't know that, you know? And I said, okay, you're right. I'll, um, I'll make some phone calls and see what I can figure out. Did you have any intentions on calling her back that night? Let's say you would have found out something. Did you have any intentions? Actually, yeah. We, we actually talked a few times that night, I think. Calling well, like, to find anything out. And so. I guess I kind of did the question wrong. I'm sorry about that because I know you did. In your mind, though, when you hang up right then, are you thinking like, I'm not calling back tonight, even if I find out something, I'm not going to call back? Or or were you really like, if I find something out, I guess I'll. Yeah, I I figured if I find something out, I will call her. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, I assumed that if there were, you know, CNO, the casualty notification officers, um, I assumed that she would hear at or before I, at the same time or before um, I heard, I wasn't sure why I thought someone, I mean, I know they come and knock at your door, but I thought maybe there's a phone call or, or some way they do it when family is spread all across the country. Um, but that's not how it works. They have to come tell you in person. Um, so, so that's kind of how it ended up working out. So like 9.30 that night, some chaplains show up to your door. You, you already know before you open the door. 
can you talk about what you're going through? I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I want people to understand exactly because how you wrote this book, you can feel exactly what you're feeling. So if you can put that into words on here and let people know exactly how you were feeling. Yeah, I walked down. I first I, you know, had put the kids to bed and I was making sure that they didn't hear me on the phone. So I was hiding and, and when I was making my phone calls. Um, and of course I was told when I called on base that they cannot release the names of anybody until the families have been notified, even the families. So if I was they said basically if your husband is one of the casualties, we still would not tell you over the phone. So the, there was and it wasn't even that in those kind of layman's terms, it was an official document that she was reading off of, which honestly was much colder. And um, it was just more chilling. Um, and did was probably the one thing out of everything that made me feel worse and took away my peace was her reading that. It was basically like reading the the statement of death to me already um so i hung up the phone and i went downstairs and put on my pajamas and got ready for bed um knowing full well i wasn't going to bed and then i sat down and stared at the wall and thought about i honestly started already planning over in my mind it was like a circular loop about what my plan was for the next couple years to take care of me and me and the kids on my own and what what it would look like as i sat on my steps waiting for the door um for the for the knock um and then i heard the car pull up and the doors outside open and shut and then they came to my door and uh when they knocked i opened it and i told them it's okay i already know and they said no ma'am we need to um, actually read the statement to you. And so um, they asked if they could come inside and I wish I could have said no and just slammed the door, <laughs> but you let them in and um, they, you know, start with uh, re we regret to inform you that, you know, basically your husband was killed in action. Um, and as they read that, uh, it's like a brick hits you with each word um, and your knees go weak and I remember backing away from them and wishing that they hadn't read the statement it would have been easier um, and I, I don't remember much except after that drinking a lot of water because I'd gone into physical shock um, I think I drank water for like seven hours after that, just glass after glass, staring at the wall. And they asked me if I could um, call somebody. Um, and I said, no, I, I don't have anybody. And uh, then I realized I had a friend up the street, so I called her. I mean, you're military. You don't live anywhere near family. My closest family was, you know, um, I happened to have a cousin and uh, about a five or six hour drive from where I was. So I ended up calling her. But besides that, um, we were on the East Coast and my entire family was on the West Coast. Um, yeah. Well, and I don't want to interrupt you on that. I do have a question though. 
you said that if you could have told them no or shut the door or anything, did that make it final to you? Was it not final until you heard that? Or was there still hope? Or what was it about turning these people away? Because you told them, I already know. You told your mother-in-law, you already know. So I just wonder what it was about that, that, that you just did not want that to happen. It's similar to seeing a gravestone with the person's name on it. Okay. It's there's something so final when they use the word killed with your husband's name. Uh, do you think that we could be doing that better? And what I mean by that is informing these families or getting the help they need or the coverage they need because they ask you, do you have anyone? Can we be doing that better? I think the only thing that I've, you know, discussed with the military actually about notifications is making sure that um, that families, because sometimes these happen during the day, they happen in the morning, they happen when the kids are home. They're not, they're not happening. I was fortunate. My kids were in bed. They were asleep. Um, I think making sure that before you give that type of notification, the adult is alone because you don't know what their reaction is going to be. The kids don't need to see the parents screaming, falling apart. You know, um, the parent needs a minute to collect themselves. Um, but I think just giving them that information is so important because I could have just avoided believing it for a long time and that wouldn't have served me at all. I, and I, I think in the end, um, with you listening to it and it happening, did that still put you in that same place where you were you were just ready to plan and ready to get on with it? Because I, I got the overwhelming feeling in the book that you felt like it's on you now. You you There's no time for you to stop. There's no time for you to take a break and actually think about this. You have so much to take care of, including the kids, including getting to the airport, all these different things, bringing family in. Um, is that what kind of kept you sane through the very first part of it? Yeah, um, it was, I didn't sleep the first night. I, you know, got up and took the kids to school early and um, let the school know what was going on and to gather their things before I went and told them. Um, and then I was going to tell them at the end of the day when their grandpa arrived. Um, and pretty much from every, every day from then on out, I would get up before anybody else um, and get dressed, do my hair and makeup at like five in the morning, make my bed, clean the house, make coffee and prepare everything so everyone could come over and be comfortable in my house. And it helped me just focus a little bit because I, I was still in, I was in shock for probably months. I mean, not as, as acute as that first night, but it's still this version of shock where you're living almost, I don't know. People say like it's an out of body experience and it somewhat is, it's, it's more like you're, you still robo robotic, like you're going through the motions and, and you're not necessarily present. Um, like you normally are. I could have hours go away, go by and, and not really realize that it'd been hours. I would think it'd been a few minutes. Do you feel that that kind of put you being out of control in your life that put you kind of back in control? Yeah, I would 
I would take hold of the things that I could control and control those things. I could control myself, my morning, my household, um, those things. And everything else just felt like it was being handed to me. The way military does um, military funerals and what happens at the end of life is they give you this huge notebook that's, you know, this thick. I don't know. It's, it's uh, six inches thick and it's it's huge. And you have to go page by page and, and get all this paperwork, fill out all this paperwork, go to all these different author offices um, and basically... Um, basically you're, you're signing out of the military as though you're retiring. Um, so you're doing what your husband would have done or your, you know, your spouse would have done when they got out. Um, but it's, it's months worth of paperwork. And that's what I got from the, the whole story. The, the reason I asked the one, if you, if that helped you maintain control, because if we fast forward all the way to the end of the book and when the final report comes out, they come to see you. You make a big deal about making food, making coffee, making sure everyone eats before this final uh, report is given to you. And, and even as much as they had messed with you in the first report, which we'll get into, you made sure that you controlled that from the beginning to the end. And this is what I mean by the evolution of your character, because if you think about the very first time that you went into the briefing, it took you a minute to speak up and get your voice. And in that final report, you controlled it from the second they touched the door until they left. And I think also you need to know when you're in those situations, who's responsible for what. And um, by the time we got to the final redacted report and the people bringing it, I knew which part they each played for the most, for the most part. Um, and so I understood that they were not my enemy. And that helped. Going into the AFRICOM briefing, I was still under the assumption that I was sitting down with people who were my friends and were on my side. And that was my mistake. And, and you learned that throughout this entire thing. One more thing that I would like to talk to you about before we get out of that is um, when you tell your sons, you decide to send them to school, not tell them anything. You give them one more, you said one more good day before their world's kind of turned upside down. But this is where family really started coming into the story in here. And, and Henry is, a, from everything in the book, a phenomenal man. Uh, from how he stepped up with you, how he stepped up with the boys. Will you, will you talk a little bit about um, taking them out there, giving this information that I, I can't even imagine giving out, um, and, and just how you're going to deal with it and, and the support that you got from Henry. Yeah. Um, you know, first I just have to say that I have phenomenal in-laws. I was really just blessed that Brian had such great parents, his mom and his dad. Um, from the beginning, I used to tell him that I was marrying him for his mother. Um, <laughs> he would deploy and then I'd go visit her. And we'd hang out and do all sorts of cool stuff. Um, she's just so much fun. And same with his dad, just great people. Um, and so when this happened, the attitude automatically from them was we. 
what are we going to do? We'll help you. Don't worry. We'll take care of you if you need, if you need that, like anything you want, just tell us anything you need, just tell us. And honestly, even when I needed anything, I wouldn't have to say it. They were already there helping me out. Um, and unfortunately, Karen was on the West Coast at the time and Henry was on the East Coast. So he arrived before she did. Um, so we went out to tell the boys. I wanted them to have as much family around as possible. But again, by that evening, when they, by, the, by that afternoon, when they got out of school, the only people there were my cousin and then Henry. Um, so my father-in-law and I took them out to this wooded area and he automatically steps out and um, says, you know, I'll, basically I'll tell them or do you want me to tell them? And, and I remember just being um, absolutely heartbroken at the idea of him having to tell his grandsons that his son had died. And um, that to me was not acceptable. So I told him that it was my job. And um, so we went down there together and told the boys. And um, I don't think, um, you know, between the four of us, there was, by the end of it, none of us were doing too well. Um, that was really hard. Um, and then at the end, Ezekiel started questioning, well, who's going to teach me to fish and who's going to teach me to do this and that? And I remember it got really quiet and I just turned to Henry and I said, well, that's what your grandpa's for. That's what grandpa will do. And I looked at Henry and we made eye contact and, and he said, you know, basically, absolutely. That'll be my job. It, it's just amazing to hear, even when you talk about your in-laws, that they would always ask you, what do you need? What can we help you take care of? never asking for it in, in return, just being there and being part of the family and being your family when you needed it the most, because you talked about when the chaplains were there, you didn't have anyone. And these guys kind of closed in around you and just cocooned you and, and took care of it. And I, I think it was an amazing part of the story. They are unbelievable people from everything that you've written about them. Is there anything that, that stands out about them to you? Gosh, you know, it's so funny that, yeah, the chaplains were absolutely incredible. Um, we had a chaplain, Chaplain Ferner. He was just such a good guy. And later another chaplain came in, Chap Chaplain Perry and Chaplain Pete. Um, and they were just all these really great guys. We still have relationships with them. And I remember one night, uh, Chaplain Perry and Chaplain Ferner asked me, is there anything we can do for you? And um, it was Memorial Day just after the ambush. So it was 2018. And I said, yes, everybody, all the families are going to this event, but it's not appropriate to bring kids to because it's like a silent auction. There'll be alcohol and, you know, I'd like to go, but I, I'm not taking the kids. I don't even think kids were allowed. And um so the chaplains babysat the boys <laughs> and uh, it was hilarious. They had so much fun. They took the boys to do like an escape room and then took them out fishing or something. And uh, yeah, it was pretty amazing. So the boys and them all had such a great time. But Does it ever strike you weird that there's all these amazing people in the military 
And then you have these other people that you dealt with during this entire incident. And, and we'll get into those people. But does it ever strike you as strange? Like they have the greatest people and like the worst people. And, and there's really, when you come to those kind of people, there's no middle ground. They're either giving of everything or trying to take everything from you. Um, and when you talked about you ask a question, uh, if they would watch the boys so you could go to the silent auction. That was another part of the book that I thought uh, you really started kind of being a different person when President Trump calls and you talk to him on the phone and he says, if there's anything I can do for you, let me know. And you were like, okay, well, I've got something for you. You can do it. Is that something you would have ever done before this? I, you know, I really don't think I would have. At that moment, though, I had nothing. I think, you know, it's it's that thing of not having anything left to lose. And you realize I'm on the phone with a president. When is this ever going to happen? And in a, if a president is saying to a widow, if is if there's anything I can ever do for you, this is the moment to ask. You are never going to be on the phone with a sitting president. I mean, what are the odds that you ever would be? Um, so if a president asks you that, you have to take him up on it. You don't let that go. Um, because at that point, the leader of the free world is letting you, you know, call in a favor, so to speak. Um, you can have anything you want. I should have asked for a yacht, but you know, <laughs> I think he's got a couple of those too. So, <laughs> so now we talk about you growing as a person, but I, I think that it's, it's good to point out at the airport, uh, this is where Ezekiel starts really kind of changing uh, his, his spots. Um, and he becomes that older brother and that mature brother that, that you really needed at that time without you even saying anything. He kind of took on that role. And when you go to the airport and he tries to keep his brother calm and at the funeral when he keeps his brother calm, how proud are you in that moment? Because the way you write it in the book, you were just in awe of it. Yeah, I was. Um, it's it's interesting. It kind of goes along with something I've discussed a few times. Um, you know, I remember Brian coming home, and, and there's a lot of military guys who go through this. They deploy, and they come home to their kids, and, and they say, you know, I've been in these third world countries and these kids are so capable and they're so mature. And, you know, my kids, you know, they can barely tie their shoes and it makes them crazy. And um, they don't realize, we don't realize that that's a gift. Our children, the, the maturity that those third world kids have comes at a high cost. And that cost um, we experienced that year. It's called death and hardship. And um, so my kids uh, matured overnight and um, they were no longer children. At 11 years old, my autistic son was now um, basically a young man. And um, it was good, but I wouldn't wish that for anyone. And I am proud of him. With him, with Isaac, what was the change that you saw other than the things that we've pointed out, like at the airport, at the funeral, what was the other things that you saw him uh, just kind of becoming his own person? 
with Isaac or with Zeke? With Zeke. Um, before it was just typical brother things. I mean, he'd he'd always somewhat taken care of Isaac, but you know, if he lost his temper or whatever, um, typical with autism, you'd have to really keep an eye on him around his little brother and try and teach him you know, about this is family. And if you're going to be a part of the family, then you have to, you know, treat, you know, treat everybody well. And um, what I saw was after that, he began to take care of Isaac more um, and keep an eye on him and worry about him. And he became like, you know, more than just an older brother. Um, yeah. Yeah. Even now I'll hear him. Isaac, did you get your homework done? Isaac, <laughs> well, did you brush your teeth before school? <laughs> well, I, I got to tell you this. I have three daughters of my own and um, that doesn't change even, you know, with just siblings in general, they all get mad at each other. They all, I've got to watch them sometimes with each other, but, but deep down, you know, they really care because you see those moments where no one's supposed to be watching and then you see something happening, you know, okay, maybe I'm doing something right. But, uh, yeah. the, the sibling rivalry and stuff, it, I got two teenagers and, and one that's getting ready to be a teenager in a little while. So it's, um, it's, it's quite the handful. Um, yeah. In, in in talking about that and, and talking about kids, you you have to go through so many things in this. And you talk about it at the book, from going to the airport to going to the memorial service to going to the funeral. And you're having to explain this along the way to your kids. How, how are you doing that? Because you said even you, when you got to Arlington, that you... Uh, you had no idea about it. You never knew the gratitude, uh, the grandeur of it, the uh, how big it was, and how. How do you explain that to your kids? You know, I, I don't really remember explaining it to them. I just said we have to go. We're going to bury Dad, and we have to get you suits. It's going to be in D.C. And uh, I don't think I even knew what to expect. It was more when we're done, it's going to, you know, it's going to be a hard day. And when it's done, we get to stay at the Trump hotel and maybe we'll get to see Trump. So it was just these like padding, you're padding things with, this is what we're going to do. It's going to be hard and it's going to be brutal, but we're going to have this grand experience too. If I could, I want to make a little fun of you for a second um, about being at Arlington and Really not checking out your shoes before you went there. If, if uh, you you can tell that story because I can only imagine what that looked like happening. And and you said it was almost a happy point for you that you thought you know your husband might be looking down and and kind of laughing at you. Yeah, you know I'd always heard that you shouldn't let a widow go shopping on her own right after the loss. And um, up to that point, my mom and my sister had taken me everywhere, but I didn't have anyone to go with me when I picked out my stuff for Arlington. And when I got there that day, I realized my dress was too short. And then I was like, well, no big deal, whatever. It's a little short, <sighs> you know, but it was the only black dress I could find in Fayetteville. It's not a very good place to shop. <laughs> and so I thought, well, it no It seems like deal, a whatever. metropolitan city there. I mean, it seems yeah, like it would just be right. sprawling with stores. <laughs> Yeah, so I found the one black dress in town, and um, 
<laughs> I should have gone to Raleigh, but I don't know. I was not in my right mind. Um, and then I thought, well, no big deal. I got the dress, so I'm just going to run over and grab some shoes. Well, there I am at Arlington thinking, well, you know, this dress is awkward. And then realizing as I get to Arlington, I didn't even realize it when I was at the hotel that morning. I walk into this like kind of space, like office type space they have at Arlington. It's like this little room where they have the families go. And when I walked in there is when I realized my shoes were too big. <laughs> and I remember stuffing, going into the bathroom and stuffing toilet paper in my shoes and thinking that would solve it in the toes. But I forgot that my heels would keep popping out when we walked. <laughs> so, <laughs> so then I'm walking and I just thought, I feel like a little kid in all the wrong size clothes today. And this is just awful because we're chasing the Kassan. The Kassan moves fast. It's, you know, the horse drawn thing and they're going and it's like a mile from where we're at to where the graveside was. And I had another pair of shoes that didn't go with anything and looked terrible. And I refused. I was like, I would rather like, you know, be running through Arlington with blisters, you know, or even in my stockings and put the wrong shoes on. And then I thought, oh, Brian would just love that. My stockings tearing and, you know, this would just be great. It, it seems like you would always throughout this book find different ways to look at the situation kind of half cup full instead of half cup empty. Uh, and and they were they were very good. I'm glad you put them in the book and told things like that because I think it really humanizes the situation. Um, and I think a lot of people might be scared to put that in their books and stuff by thinking it it's rude or wh whatever it may be. But I love that you put the stories like that in there. Now we need to get into kind of the serious part of it, um, the investigation. Now, we, we talked about before when you go to the AFRICOM investigation and, and you see all the things. Do you have any idea going into this that it's going to turn out so crazy? Because the way this story happens, and it starts kind of with the family memorial with Brenton, uh, Captain Perizzini coming and talking to you, and you kind of start to get an idea of what happened, but... Did you ever have an idea that it was going to get this haywire? No, you know, and honestly, at the time when I talked to them, I don't think they did either. They assumed that they were just going to follow orders, right? Not talk until the investigation was done. And then everything was, the air was going to be clear. We were all going to know what happened. No one was going to be punished. It was more just about, hey, let's, let's let the families know what happened. Because, I mean, AFRICOM and their investigating officer had also interviewed the guys on the ground. So they assumed that those, those interviews that, that they had already done with AFRICOM held a lot of weight, right? What they didn't know was that they were going to be looked at as dishonest by AFRICOM and their um, interviews would basically hold no weight in the investigation. So I think they were thinking the same thing I was, which is this is going to be just fine. And um, granted, as, as time went on, things got crazier between the release of the head cam video and then the reports coming out of the media saying that they talked to, um, you know, an anonymous source within the uh, investigation saying bad things about the team and that, you know, this was a 
basically a team that had gone rogue and acted like cowboys who had a cavalier attitude. And none of this rang true to me. So I just assumed we get to um, this family brief and we can hash out these details and we'll get to the truth. But what I found was that as I tried to hash out the details, um, I was met with like these half answers that were very circular and just kind of walked me away from the question I asked and didn't answer anything at all. Um, so I felt like I was more confused and the answers seemed to fall in line more with just trust us, Miss Black, not really giving me answers. Not only trust us, Miss Black, but almost condescending to you every time you would ask a question, you, you got a smile, but you got a lot of people trying to keep you quiet in the briefing is what I gathered from reading the book. Um, and, and if they knew you, they knew this was the time. Don't make you angry because then you really dig your heels in and start going after in this. How did they come up with the original thing that this was a rogue mission, that these guys were doing something they weren't supposed to be because it, from everything, from all the facts that come in from the very beginning, they tried to deny this mission multiple occasions and were still sent out on it. So I just don't understand where that original thought came from that they were cowboys. Um, you know, I think that it all came down to the initial intel and what they were initially going to um, go out on as, as far as the intel that they were initially acting on, um, on the first mission. But then that changed because the mission got delayed and then delayed further until the intel that they were initially acting on was no longer relevant. So the, the finally, when they were going out to Tillowa on the first mission, um, that intel wasn't relevant and so they created a mission around just doing another training mission and collecting intel, intel by doing a civilian military reconnaissance. And I don't know if I've made that too complicated, but basically they got information the night of the second that they needed to go down or up to Tillowa straight away. There was a two hour time window that a um, terrorist was gonna be in the area of Tillowa. And they made it known like, hey, listen, the team said, if we go up there, um, by the time we pack and we drive up there, it'll still take us a solid five to six hours to get packed and up there. So he'll still have left. So then they were um, contacted by um, the AOB and Niami who said, hey, listen, we still want you to act on this intel, but uh, we want to send a reconnaissance vehicle with you. So instead of going tonight, we want you to leave in the morning. So now we're talking about 14 hours later. They're going to act on this specific intel, which was only good for two hours on the night of the second. And now they're going there um, over 14 hours later on the morning of the third. So um, that was kind of the big push by AFRICOM was that hey, they were going on a kill capture mission and didn't get approval. And when I talked to the guys, they're saying, there's no way. The intel was no longer relevant. We're not going on a kill capture mission. They wanted us to just go down and 
you know, see if on the on off chance the guy was still there, which we knew he wouldn't be. Not that's not the way these terrorists operate. And also just to collect intel, like did anybody see him or was it um, just people who were within his terrorist network? Because usually these guys, especially the top guys, are surrounded by rings of other people. They the, Don Dushefu himself, the high value target, would not have been the one going into Tilawa. And these guys knew that. So they were just basically going down to see if anybody had any information, essentially. So it was just a civilian military reconnaissance mission, but AFRICOM was painting it as something else. And I believe that that's because when the team was turned around, they were heading home after that mission and they were turned around and pushed further. It was then that intelligence was used to keep pushing them further and further, chasing this terrorist up to his camp um, and I'm assuming that was to somehow benefit the lieutenant colonel who was making all of the calls on these missions. Well, let's. I, I, I'm glad that you brought that up, that they got turned around. Now, there were three different con ops that were done for this. Uh, Captain Petrozini only did the first one. And we're going to get into a little bit of the details of that. But the second and third one, he had nothing to do with. It was someone way away from the situation, telling them where they were going to go. Yet when it gets to the end of this briefing, they say that the other two con ops or the operational orders or the mission were messed up because the first one was messed up and they brought up some cut and paste controversy that, hey, this was cut and pasted and this was, it. but it had to be because the operation got changed twice before they even left their initial uh, staging area. So what was it that they said to you about this? Because even just a person sitting back watching this, that makes absolutely no sense. No, absolutely not. Because first of all, the cut and paste thing is a joke because of course they cut and paste the same language when they're doing the same mission they've done over and over since they've been in country. Then they change the dates and times and equipment needed. But overall, they're not going to fill out pages and pages of report fresh. They're going to basically paste, copy and paste it and then edit the whole document to fit that day's missions or mission. So that's pretty normal, especially if you ask any operator who's worked in that same country or any country doing similar operations. Um, so that was pretty irrelevant. Um, and yeah, there were two add-on missions. And I remember asking specifically, um, well, so were these separate missions. So with each um, con op that was created, it was a separate mission. So technically there were three missions. The only successful mission was the first one that Captain Perzini had created the con op for. So even if they had been misleading or whatever, they ended up basically doing the mission that they had set out to do in their con op, whether or not that that was a misleading con op they still did that mission you know what i mean so it doesn't make any sense well and the if i can interrupt for just a second there but but that's the thing that doesn't make sense to me that's the biggest one that sets off a red flag in the first place let's say the first con op was uh they made it up they didn't tell all the whole truth First off, they got that mission given to them where they tried to turn it down a couple times by saying they hadn't got sleep. 
uh, that people were coming in to meet them. There were all different kinds of reasons that they tried to argue. So let's say that, that it wasn't even truthful, the first one they go out on. Whether it is or not, it's successful. As they're coming back and trying to get back to their AO, they're told to go out on separate missions, other missions that they try and say, that's not a safe mission. So everywhere along the way, no matter what con op we're talking about, they are telling command, this isn't safe. This isn't something we should be doing. We're in the dark. We're driving like six miles an hour. We're loud. There's people following us. I, I just, I guess I'm not understanding how they explain this away in the briefing because like I said before, none of it makes sense that we even get to two and three of the mission. Well, and you know, that's what I kept basically telling them. I'm like, well, okay. So either way they did that and completed that mission successfully, correct? Well, yes, Miss Black, but you'll see at the end why this all matters. So then they go through and they explain all the other con ops and I stop them. Well, you know, did Captain Perizzini write the second con op? Well, no, he didn't. That was Lieutenant Colonel Painter over in Chad. Okay, well, um, did he create the third con op? Well, no, he couldn't have. He's on the ground. He needs a computer. So it was, you know, someone back at the AOB or whatever, and it was approved all the way up the chain of command. And so I was like, okay, so that led directly to the ambush. So I don't, I'm not understanding how Captain Perizzini could be at fault. And by then it was just this, like, trust us, Miss Black, you'll see it by, you know, you'll understand. It was kind of one of those just devoid of any sense answers that wasn't an answer to basically keep me from asking any further questions that they didn't have answers for. Well, it doesn't sound like they had answers for anything that was asked um, because no. there was other stuff brought up. Uh, why was the support stretch so thin? Why did it take so long to get the drone up? Why could they only communicate with the drone? The guys that came and saw you and said that they, uh, I cannot remember the colonel's name, that came and saw you and said he had very little information. He'd been in teleconferences all night about what was going on, so he had every idea about what was going on there. All of these things were brought up and put down in front of you, and they don't explain it away. How do you feel that you can take the next step you're in this meeting you know you're getting shut down what are you thinking for your next because as we know from when you very first got told that your husband was killed you're constantly planning ahead so what's going on in your brain honestly i i also tend to be someone who i sit there and i marinate on things for a long time and then i give you every chance so i thought when i left that meeting i thought okay I have more questions than answers. I'm going to discuss it with my father-in-law who was a Marine and see if he noticed the same things I did and just make sure, because at this point I've never op been operative. Um, so what do I know? You know, I don't know that much. Maybe I'm missing something. So I'm going to talk to other people who have experience and he'd, you know, done operations, um, done investigations before. So I knew he would help me. So I discussed it with him. I discussed it with my mother-in-law. We all sat around and, and went through it. And then I discussed it with my CAO, who was also a Green Beret. Um, 
And then I thought, okay, I'm going to wait until the media brief. And when the media brief happened, I thought this is when they're going to say, hey, these are our findings, but no one is at fault. And that's not what I heard. What I heard was that essentially um, these findings were going to be handed down and the team would be held accountable. And um, then the final straw was General Waldhauser went a step further and said that while all teams on the continent were performing optimally, my husband's team was not indicative of what special operators do. And in one fell swoop, he dishonored all the men who had fought and died that day. And I was done. It was at that point where I thought, no, the only person who is not indicative of a leader or a special operator is this man who would dishonor the dead with his words. Did you ever get a clear understanding of what the, I don't want to use the word cover up because I don't, I don't know enough about the situation as you do, but it, it almost screams the word cover up. Why the, why trying to get these guys to be the scapegoats for it? Why it was so much an issue of getting it because we're talking all the way to the very end of everything. I mean, the final report, they're trying to, really put the screws to these guys, even when it comes to the awards. Why was it so important that they cover this up? War well, is dangerous. All, awards, I mean, you can't reward, you can't highly decorate a team that you've blamed, correct? So that, first of all, is why the team was not highly decorated to begin with. Um, second of all, um, why do it... Um, I believe, and I think it's pretty obvious now after all these years, that Lieutenant Colonel Painter, who was responsible for ordering the men ahead on the mission multiple times, um, who also was responsible for all the pre-deployment training, the validation of the pre-deployment training that other men were, were um, punished for. In fact, Major Alan Van Sand lost, lost his career over pre-deployment training, and yet the only person really who was responsible for validating that training was the same Lieutenant Colonel who ordered the men and pushed them ahead on this mission against their will multiple times and wrote all the con ops or wrote, um, ordered them written and then approved all of them. So this was his mission. And he was in chat at the time. He was known as being a very, you know, very aggressive person who had been working in, um, I, I want to say, Afghanistan for years. And so for me, if there was anybody who had a cavalier attitude at the, towards the situation on the ground in Africa, it was him. And at this point, he, I think he, on the second round of punishments, received a local Gomor, or Gomor in his local file, which would mean that the minute he was moved to a new position, it would fall away. And he was moved pretty much straight away. And now if you look for him, you cannot find anything on him. From what I've heard, it's like he just continues moving through the ranks and um, it's impossible to find anything on him. And it has been impossible to find anything on him from the beginning. It was easier to find things on Colonel Moses and the Green Berets who are supposedly, you know, Green Berets, their identity should not be 
um, put out there, but they were easier to find and they were put out there. And yet you still can't find anything on Lieutenant Colonel Painter. Um, and so my thought is he has protection from very high up the chain, maybe four star level. Well, and you mentioned that, that names were brought out, weren't two brought out in the final draft. Like of all these things that were redacted, like pages and pages of redacted information, two Green Berets names came out in it, correct? Yeah, of all the, you know, it took them a year to finish all the redactions and the only names left in were two special operators. It, 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 uh, none of it seems to make sense to me and it angers you as you read it. Another thing that kind of angered me was they asked for suggestions from you and your family and said, we really want to look into this. What can we do? And yours was a very simple, uh, suggestion to them teach groupings of words and words that are important and would have been important during the ambush to the people that are working on the ground, not necessarily an interpreter, not speaking fluently. And they took it as you saying, my husband speaks four languages. Everyone else should. And that's not what you said at all. You were trying to tell them these are things that could keep future soldiers alive in the field. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not one who usually speaks up, especially in that big of a conference conference room with that many professionals. And I thought, I mean, I don't know much, you know, at the time I was like, I'm just stay at home wife, whatever. Um, but it seems to me that if you could put together uh, just a booklet of 10 useful phrases that everybody in the teams are using to work alongside their partner forces as they train, that that would help everybody when they get into these situations, just basic things that they yell as they are working together, like run, stop, go, things like that. And so that if they lose an interpreter, they can all continue to work together basically. And um, the uh, lawyer in the room stood up and kind of gave me this condescending smile and a backhanded compliment stating that, um, you know, basically Miss Black, not all men, um, your husband had a gift for languages and, um, not all men can learn that, which is ironic since every single man who is a green beret learns a foreign language. I, I think it was a good idea. And, and you reinforce that idea. I think without even knowing you did when you talk about the end and they're almost killed by friendly forces and it takes someone standing up and yelling friend in a language that they understood as they were coming to rescue them. Very yeah. simple thing again, but the entire team would, I, I believe that if he wouldn't have stood up at that time, the entire team would have been wiped out. Yeah. Well, and the first person to run from the firefight was who? The interpreter. There, there you go. I want to talk about each man, and I want to read parts of your book, if that's okay, just little tiny snippets of paragraphs about each man. Uh, I want to start with Brian, uh, and I want to read what you wrote. And I, I, I thought once again, I think it is absolutely amazing how you told this story of what really happened in the battle. And I don't want to give too much away because I, I really think that people need to read it and understand it. And I don't think it'll do us justice to talk about little bits and pieces, but I do want to read things that really stood out to me in it. So you say uh, about Brian, you say at truck number two, Brian set his jaw and runs into the hail of incoming bullets. 
Getting down on one knee, he peers down his sights as he aims his M320 grenade launcher at the advancing enemy vehicle. He pulls the trigger, and with the teeny thwunk, the grenade launches out of the tube. The grenade hangs for a moment as if suspended mid-flight before slamming into the target. A blast erupts as the grenade damages and disables the enemy's vehicles. And I read that part because... (laughs) There were numerous times in the story where you said how much he liked that grenade launcher, how much time he spent with it, and you said he had the biggest smile that he ever had on his face when he pulled it out in this ambush and started to use it. Um, And it just shows you that these guys just got right to work. Everything was going on, and they got right to work. Um. Can you talk a little bit about Brian and what you knew of him as a soldier? Gosh, uh, well, first of all, he'd started running missions with his friends when he was a teenager. So he'd been training for this his whole life. <laughs> he was the type of guy who had an ax that he was sharpening it because he'd heard that if you um, that the ultimate kill was an ax kill. Um, And he kept it on his person. He also had multiple knives on his person. um, One, which was a finger hold knife that was sharpened on all edges um, to a point. So he could pull out and just, you know, do what he needed to do. So he was ready for hand-to-hand combat um, at any moment and looked forward to it. Brian was the kind of person that if, uh, you know, that was the one thing when I found out he died so quickly that I thought, oh, it's too bad. Because he would have wanted that opportunity to get that close and really take him to the ground. Um, but, you know, I thought he couldn't even get his axe kill in. But that was Brian. He was not afraid of anything. And when it happened, when I got the news, um, I and I found out that the men were left behind that's when I um, realized that automatically my response was Brian did something to try and help the other men get out. He didn't get accidentally left behind. That's not who he is. Who he is is someone who would order the other guys, hey, let's stay here and continue to fight and create a blocking position for everybody else to leave. And when I talked to his teammates and watched the video, that basically backed up everything I thought from the beginning was that, that, you know, him and Jeremiah and Dustin were all similar in that regard and that they had created a blocking position in order for the rest of the men to escape. They weren't victims. Well, and, and your husband that you talk about, he saw the bullet coming the very last bullet. He saw it coming as he was down into a position, getting ready to fire again. Um, and you talk about Jeremiah and Dustin, that's actually who I wanted to bring up next. Now, this part of the story like gave me goosebumps. So, uh, you said with no hope of escape, Jeremiah continues to fight with fierce determination. The 39 year old Sergeant first class lays his head down, grateful to have Dustin there when he at last succumbs to his wounds. Dustin stands his ground fighting the oncoming horde alone. As the militants surround him, he raises his weapon and opens fire. Staring down the enemy, the 29-year-old staff sergeant fights to the death, knowing he gave all he could in a desert far from home. When I say that you couldn't make a movie better than that, you couldn't make a story better than that, it's absolutely amazing. First to hear about your husband, then to hear about these guys, and that there was just no quit in them. I, I can only imagine 
what it drives you to feel about them being dishonored with everything that happened in the final ambush. Yeah. I mean, for me, the minute that began to happen, basically there, it wasn't going to happen. I would stop it and I would, um, basically I won't quit, you know, and I won't stop and I won't stop speaking up and I won't quit, you know, reminding people that this lays at the feet of AFRICOM and Lieutenant Colonel Painter and General Waldhauser, not my husband, that those men are heroes and they deserve their awards, their awards to be upgraded. And that's the men on the team who survived also do. And they deserve more honor than they were given. Absolutely. Do you think that before we get into to La David, do you think that'll ever happen though? Do you have hope that it will? I do. You know, it's interesting because when we talk about award upgrades and how awards are upgraded, one huge piece of it is there has to be either physical proof, some, like somebody who was there who saw what happened happen, or there has to be some other proof, such as pictures or video. Recently, we were um, given uh, the opportunity to watch the 45-minute video, the full length of what happened on the ground, according to uh, it, it was the video that the French found. Um, it's a full head cam video. And I have no doubt that with that full video, the awards will have to be upgraded at some point because it shows exactly um, what happened in those minutes. And my husband's vehicle did choose to stay behind. Talking about that video, that's been a very sore subject with you. And I only want to talk about it briefly. Um, and the reason I want to bring it up is one, because I know that how you feel about it, you and I have talked offline about that, how you feel about it. But recently I noticed that you've been posting on social media and with some other people that other people's family members are saying, please stop promoting this video. Please stop putting it out as cool. And it, it's, it's happened on numerous occasions where unsuspecting people, I think Ondo was on a plane and uh, sitting in first class and the guy next to him was watching it. These uh, other men that were killed, their kids have to see it. They, they've seen it at school and on YouTube and all these different kinds of things. I want to talk about the video and what you think about it. And I want you to explain to everybody that's listening why it's so important that this only be shown to the people that it needs to be shown to. This is not something for the entire world to see. There are several reasons. The first is, and I think this should be both obvious and um, should be the only reason you need, is that it's terrorism. And the people who released it initially are terrorists and they used it to promote terrorism. The fact that our news, a news organization in the US, no other news organization would touch it. CBS chose to take a piece of terrorism and put it on TV and make it available to the American public, which further terrorized the families and continues to terrorize the families. Now we talk about PTSD or PTS, post-traumatic stress. Um, and that's, you know, you have flashbacks, you have automatic reactions. Can you imagine living through a battle where you barely survived 
your friends died. Um, you had to put up with this terror and this horror and you survive, you make it out. And then a video is constantly popping up in your face. Talk about flashbacks. We say we care for our veterans. We care to prevent PTS and PTSD and suicide. Then quit, quit playing this video, quit showing it and quit keeping it on your um, YouTube site. I mean, Safra, CBS, it's all still on their YouTube websites. This stuff should not exist there anymore. It's on Reddit. It's all over the place. It should not exist for anybody who stands in the right place to support soldiers and to um, stands against PTS, PTSD, and suicide. It's unacceptable. You have been a lot more vocal about it lately. You, you've always been vocal about the video, but you've really started taking kind of the fight to the people. Uh, is there anything that can be done or anything that people can do to help you get, because there's been, I think the big thing about it was there's been so many copies of copies of copies that that original is not out there, that it's just blasting around. So is there any way people can come together and kind of get this stopped for you? You know, I've tried to figure that out. Um, it has to be the sites that, um, cause it's really social media that is the problem. I mean, granted, you know, CBS has it still, and people think that, oh, if you splice it and cut it, then it's still acceptable, but it's not. It's still a trigger for those people who were there, and it's still a trigger for the kids that survived. And I mean, my mother-in-law, to watch her son's body be drugged through the dirt over and over, it's disgusting. That's her, her child. You know, she doesn't see it any different just because he was 35 and it was four years ago that he was killed. That's still her son. So you don't play these things. And you know, it's it's interesting to me that we have this huge conversation about dangerous language on social media with President Trump and other people that we block, and yet we have terrorism that we host because, well, it doesn't really show his blood, and well, it no longer is the original full terrorist video. Well, I don't care. The original head cam video terrorizes um, every person who was involved, and it terrorizes the families. That is terrorism. So if it's on your social media site, you are promoting terrorism and allowing it to sit there. TikTok, Twitter, um, YouTube, you know, you've blocked Trump, but you won't block terrorism. It's disgusting. And, and it's amazing, you know, talking about that. How many of these videos are still out there, these terrorist propaganda videos? Uh, I did a, a conversation with uh, a person uh, that wrote a book about the Jordanian pilot that was set on fire. That video is still out there. And it's in Western sources. Like you can just pull it up on the Internet and stuff. It's amazing what videos. You're exactly right. What videos can and can't be out there. Uh, and I think the kickback you get from a lot of people is saying, you know, once again, we go to that stupid freedom of the press. It's freedom of I can do that. But they don't understand, and that's why I wanted to talk to you about it. I don't think people really understand the gravity of it until they hear it from the person that's actually living that every day. Because just like with the job that your husband has, you can't understand that job unless you've been a part of it, unless you've seen the things that those people have seen. And not only when you say that ambush happened, their friends died, they were injured, they get back. They were kind of got their backs turned on, too, when they got here. Some of them received punishments, all different kinds of things. So th there was no way that this incident turned out good for any of the men that were involved. 
Exactly. Absolutely. So, and I think I'm just getting so tired of hearing people pay lip service to, you know, honoring our heroes and, you know, PTSD and then still showing or, you know, um, you, uh, giving a platform to these videos. It's, it's ridiculous. I want to get to Le David one more, uh, one more, and then I want to announce all the guys' names, and then I want to do the final investigations and kind of get your final thoughts on all of this. Um, so when you talk about Le David in the book, you say after Le David's body was located, he was wrapped and taken back to the base at Niamey, just as his teammates had been. The young man was removed by helicopter by Casey and the Sergeant Major. With his vision blurred again by tears, Casey shook as he draped his friend in an American flag. The entire camp was silence as the multitude of people stood at attention, honoring the fallen hero. The hope the exhausted men and women had held on to the last several days. The hope who had kept them awake and searching was shattered. Because I don't think a lot of people know that for a while they couldn't find LaDavid and they weren't sure what had happened to him. And he was actually support personnel for this team and had done such a great job that they had brought him back. Um it's going to sound like a strange question, but were you almost relieved when you heard that finally everybody was recovered and brought back? Does it, does it bring a bit of better closure to the situation? Cause now everyone gets to bury their loved one gets to kind of get closure on it. Is, is it a, is it a better feeling? Is it a worse feeling? I was hoping he was lost in the desert. I think you, you know, when you hear that he's missing, you're, he's 25. He's got, you know, two little kids and his wife is pregnant. Um, and I, you know, like I said, all the men loved LaDavid. Brian loved LaDavid. So when I heard that he was missing, it was harder, honestly. Um, it was so much harder, it seemed, at that point. Just it felt so much more tragic. Um, when I heard that he was missing. And so when I heard that they found him, found his body, it just, it's like you kind of knew that's where it was going, but the hope was gone that it just made the tragic, the tragedy worse. You know, you hoped maybe somebody got some good news. When we talk about all the guys that were there, the Nigerians, um, you you have the guys from the team. Uh, so much was going wrong, and, and they had one that, that stood with them until the end and really earned their respect. He never ran from the fight. As a matter of fact, at the end, he uh, helped to get the situation under control. Uh, Inza, I think, is what they called him. Um, yes. Uh, the last question that I want to ask you about the actual ambush, the French didn't want to let him on the helicopter and it took one of our guys going toe to toe to get this guy on the helicopter. Did they ever give a reason that blew my mind when I read that? No, they didn't. I, you know, I asked everybody why and they said they don't, you know, it's just only Americans. They were only following orders and their orders were to pick up Americans, no Nigerians. 
They weren't given orders to pick up Nigerians. And initially, they didn't even want to pick up the entire team. They only wanted to pick up the injured. And they had to be ordered to take the injured. Or, I mean, everybody, because the injured said, well, if you're not taking the whole team, then we're getting off. And they realized, well, first of all, Brent was on the verge of um, his – I mean, he was in a pretty serious state at that point. If he'd stayed behind, he would have been dead within 30 minutes, maybe an hour. Um, And so – when even the injured were not allowing them to to go that's when the french said okay we'll take every we'll take all the americans and so it just was a fight because they already were only taking the injured and right. i think because of what had just happened there was a lot of tension because they didn't want to come under attack so they were trying to land pick up the guys and get out of there as quick as possible and they didn't want it take anybody more than they had to. And the rescue seemed a little strange to me too, because it took our guys finally just coming out with an American flag to get noticed because they were so worried about touching down that they had to expose themselves yet another time. It, it just made no sense to me. I, it, you know, another thing with the communication that they had, they could only talk to the drone and the drone had to relay back and then it wasn't on the same time. So they couldn't get them matched up. It it was just an absolute cluster. And it seems like everyone that was in the rear that was kind of working against this plan from the beginning, um, continued working against it the whole time. It took Casey meeting up with some people to get everything taken care of. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, the whole thing is incredible. And I think what also is incredible is that most of these issues with communication, with just, you know, landing to pick the guys up, none of these things are really discussed in the final redacted report, that these were major issues, um, because they are, um, or they were that day. I mean, it cost them hours and hours of just laying there watching Brent nearly die um and you know um yeah the whole thing and 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 the whole team almost dying in the end when they had to come out from their from their hiding position because now they're exposed and you know it's just the whole thing makes no sense and um yeah i I don't One more thing I want to mention about it, and this is going back to the briefing when everything's over, all the investigations, and and that was crazy too, where they started an investigation but canceled the investigation, and then someone else took over the investigation, then they decided they'd both work together on the investigation and all the redactions. But during this whole process, a story of a kidnapped missionary came up and said that that's what they were there to do was to find this high value target, but also rescue this missionary that, Oh, by the way, no one on the team had ever heard of this guy. Right. And that's a huge distraction in my mind. Um, that's just a huge distraction. It's a completely irrelevant lie. Um, it was to give the Lieutenant Colonel and AFRICOM an excuse for that mission to make it sound legitimate, but there was no legitimacy to that claim that this team would ever be going in to, um, you know, find the kidnap victim. They weren't that type of unit. In fact, I discussed it with team Arlet, the commander of team Arlet, and he laughed. He said, that is absolutely not true. We did not discuss that. And believe me, if there'd ever been any suggestion that 
Jeffrey Woodkey had been held up in that area, first of all, we wouldn't have been the team to go in and be doing that. And he goes, your husband's team definitely would not have been. They were there on an advise and assist. We would have had an entirely different team come in. He goes, that's way too sensitive of a mission. And that would have gone, you know, all the way up to us discussing it with the DOD and, you know, really all the way back to Washington. So this would have been a much bigger and more sensitive operation. And I mean, so the idea that Jeffrey Woodkey is somehow involved is just a distraction and it's laughable. The entire team, when I mentioned to them that Lieutenant Colonel Painter told me that, they laughed. They said, there is no way. First of all, they would have told us that that's what we were doing and um, they wouldn't have sent us. So if nobody's heard of it and it's not a mission they would do anyway, it's because that's not what they were doing up there. So I want you to tell the people we've talked a lot about who's not to blame, who got blamed, but who's not to blame. And I think we're all in agreements on that. Who is to blame? And I want you to talk about them specifically. Who's to blame. Lieutenant Colonel Painter is the one who um, specifically ordered those guys the entire time was on every VTC. Really, he's the one who took over the mission when it um, became clear that the team didn't want to go, but they would go up to the Niger-Mali border if Team Arlet became involved. So Captain Perzini suggested that he called up Arlet and started that. So from the beginning, that was Lieutenant Colonel's uh, painter's baby. He, he, from then on out, took over and was the um, one in command of the next two um, con ops and missions. And then um, he had people in his office create those and he signed them. Then um, the other person would be Colonel Moses, who was the um, third group commander. He was located in Germany. He has since been punished and um, it was actually Congress who blocked him from moving up the chain um, from getting his first star. And when that happened, he could no longer move up. So he had to move out. So he's been forced out of the army. Um, but he was in Germany. He was on all the VTCs. And um, he's the one who came <clears throat> to my house initially and told us that basically, you know, there was no information yet to be known and that the team was just on a routine patrol and they're not sure how this happened. But in fact, he was involved on the entire mission, was aware that they had been pushed and pushed and pushed further. And it was a multi-day mission and that um, it was not just a, um, you know, standard uh, routine mission. So um, from the beginning, he had been lying. They also were both responsible for the training that took place pre-deployment. The team was required to do a Jade Helm, what's called Jade Helm training, which focuses on more like guerrilla warfare, that kind of thing. And it's not relevant to what they what they would actually be doing on the ground in Niger. And so, and it had nothing to do with advise and assist. So it, it was completely irrelevant to what they were doing. So it, it really shouldn't have counted as, or been used as, um, pre-deployment training, but they didn't want to do both trainings. So they just went with it and then, um, check, checked off on it essentially. So they were the ones responsible for both the training and the bad mission. So what can people do to help 
promote your cause, to get the truth out there. Uh, I mean, other course than reading the book, is there anything they can do with Gold Star Families? Is there anything they can do with getting the truth out there a little more? Um, anything at all? Um, share it on social media. Follow me on social media. Um, share my posts. Just, you know, tell your friends about the book and about the story. Um, what I want ultimately is for um, everyone to see these men for the heroes they are and to have the right people held accountable and hopefully going forward to see change in the way investigations are done and the way promotions are done within our military. Where can people find you other than michelleblacksacrifice.com? Where else can they find you on the social media? I am on Facebook under author Michelle Black. I am also on Instagram at Michelle Black 71. Um, also on Twitter and um, doing a little bit of TikTok. I'm not great at it. So um, you can find me there too. Uh, what is that under on TikTok? I think it's all under Michelle Black 71. Okay. Uh, when you talk about people need to know who these heroes are, Staff Sergeant Brian Black, Staff Sergeant Dustin Wright, Staff Sergeant Jeremiah Johnson and Sergeant LaDavid Johnson. Is there anything that you would like to say about any of these men before we wrap this up, Michelle? You know, they're all just extraordinary men. I've heard it, you know, so many times people point out one or the other as being, you know, braver than the other, a bigger hero, you know, because of something they did. But I think even, you know, as you read my book, I'm sure you saw it. Each one did something so remarkable um, that to point one out for some reason as being more heroic than the other, then you don't have the complete story because each of these men are just unbelievably selfless, heroic men. These are what we should look to when we say, you know, bravery, never quit. When, when we think of all those inspirational, um, you know, quotes, these men are just the personification of that. And I think you would even extend that out to the team. I mean, we didn't even get into, like you said, Brent and the captain and things that they did out there. It just unbelievable stuff. Uh, the Nigerian that was with them, uh, Ondo getting him on the helicopter. But guys, once again, you need to remember the fallen and please get this story out there because I don't think enough people know about it. Staff Sergeant Brian Black, Staff Sergeant Dustin Wright, Staff Sergeant Jeremiah Johnson, and Sergeant LaDavid Johnson. These guys need to be remembered. This team needs to be remembered and this story needs to be remembered out there. I really want you to get out there and get this book. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it on your website. Please get a hold of it. Now, one question that I do have about the book. I saw that there's a second version coming out of it. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, so um, we decided to work up the paperback cover um, that's releasing in May on May 10th um, as something that's more um, representative of the team and the actual mission so that people don't look at it and automatically think from the cover that the book is about grief because really the story about, you know, what happened as far as grief is maybe a couple chapters, one or two chapters out of 27. So um, this book more heavily focuses in on the aftermath of the ambush as far as what we were told, what 
led up to me seeking the truth. And then really, I'd say the second half of the book, um, maybe more, is about what actually happened on the ground and, um, and then pulling apart the lies AFRICOM told and showing you exactly who is responsible and why. So... Also, if people want to learn more at michelleblacksacrifice.com, they can actually get a PDF form of that redacted final report. Is that correct? Yes. That's the only place it exists anymore on the internet. So if you want to really, uh, now I got to warn you, the redacted is very redacted. It's very redacted. It's uh two to three words per sentence, if that many. Um, but it's, it's great to get a look at and see exactly the extents that this went on the uh the final report of this something that should have been a lot more able to be put together but you had to take not only the team members but that and kind of meld both their stories together to find out what actually happened and you came up with this fantastic book michelle this is a awesome story i'm so glad you came on here to show the strength that you've had through this whole thing how you've taken your family from devastation to where they're at now your kids are thriving uh, you're thriving. You're getting out there and getting the story told. And it's an honor to meet you and have you on the show. Thank you so much for writing this book and coming on the show. Guys, thank you so much for having me. If you want more of me, you can find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast, and you can find me on YouTube at the DTD podcast, where all these conversations are in video form. You can take a look at some of the pictures we showed. You can get to see what uh, Michelle looks like, what the book looks like. Uh, the actual uh, memorial and different things like that. You can take a look at it. Uh, it's very interesting to see. Also, we'll put all the links to where you can find Michelle, where you can find that redactor report and where you can pick up her book. That's going to be the show for tonight, guys. That's Michelle. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you guys on the next one. See ya. <laughs>